0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Growth comes through the scriptures, so join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. We are looking at uh, verses 4 through 6 and uh, dealing with one of the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. In fact, this is uh, not the first warning passage, but it is one of the more severe warning passages. Some think it's the most severe warning passage. I think there is an intensity that, that builds. I think chapter 10 is more severe than here. But that's, uh, I guess, my opinion. We'll, we'll see when we get there if you share that opinion or not. But I believe there's a progression as the warnings are repeated and intensified. And we want to make sure the warning is what it is so that we are properly warned. We want to be properly scared, not improperly scared, all right? Um, People look at this and they think, oh my, is this passage saying I can lose my salvation? All right? No, (laughs) okay? You cannot lose your salvation. No one can lose your salvation. That's not what this passage is saying. And so now we breathe a big sigh of relief and go, whew, all right, I'm not scared of losing my salvation, okay? Okay? but you want to be scared of the right thing. You want to have the right fear because this is a warning. The warning is falling away. The warning is apostasy. The warning is a walk that is a fruitless walk, an empty walk, a vanity of vanities, Ecclesiastes walk that is, I think, worse than death. It is worse than, uh, you know, the point, if I died the sin unto death, at least I could go to heaven. Uh, but to be given over in the permissive will of God, to a non-repentant, non-maturity walk of apostasy, because my negative example can edify other believers better than my sin unto death can edify those believers. That's what we talk about here. In the permissive will of God, he may grant repentance. He may grant maturity, or he may not. And that's, uh, that's the warning. That's what we want to pay attention to. And so this is what we're dealing with, and we got a good ways into it last week, and I want to pick right up on it again here this week. Before we do, though, it is important that we take a moment of silent prayer. And this is not just a ritual. It's not just a, a thing we do, right? It's like we sing three hymns. It's a thing we do, okay? No. We do this for a reason, and silent prayer is critical. It gets every believer priest, the privacy of their priesthood, to Prepare yourself. And maybe there's a sin that has to be confessed. Or maybe there's a pride issue that has to be laid aside. Or maybe there's a mental attitude issue against a brother. You've got to deal with that. And deal with it with your head bowed and your eyes closed as unto the Lord. Silent prayer. If we confess our sins He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why we open up every Bible class with this opportunity. So join me in prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you. And we thank you, Father, that we have our priesthood. And we thank you, Father, for the book of Hebrews that's teaching us about our priesthood. And our moment of silent prayer it doesn't have to be long, Father. We don't need hours and hours. We don't need to sit in a little booth with, uh, with a confessor priest. Father, we, uh, we come before you. We acknowledge our sins before you. And it's as simple as that, Father. And uh, here we are, cleansed, righteous, prepared to grow. And so, Father, we thank You that none of this is a human endeavor. The learning of Your Word is a spiritual exercise, and Your Holy Spirit will empower our growth. So, Father, open the eyes of our understanding, open the ears of our hearing, soften our heart to receive the Word implanted. And we thank You, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we work our way through in verses 4 and 5, it it cannot be doubted that this person is saved. This person is going to go to heaven when he dies. This person is a believer. And he is a New Testament believer. He is a church age believer. Because these are descriptions that are appropriate for either uh, converts or crossovers. And a convert... Obviously, is an unbeliever that's converted to Christ that becomes saved. That's a convert. A crossover is an Old Testament believer who crosses over into the church age, into the body of Christ. And uh, we've studied that. We're going to study it again uh, on future occasions as well because it comes up so often. And I think it's vital for us to recognize that they that these the recipients of this letter are among the crossovers. The recipients of this letter are the ones that have entered into the body of Christ. They've entered into the church. They were saved in the Old Testament. They were saved before all the church age blessings were given. But then they accepted Christ as their Messiah and they were ushered into the church. And so when the apostles laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. When the apostles laid hands on them, they were ushered into the church, added to the number, as it were, in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Acts. And so um, this description here, as as we have it, it is a description. It's a fourfold description. And it is true for both converts and crossovers. That is, they have been enlightened. Okay? They have been enlightened. And enlightenment only happens once. The contrast between the once and for all and uh, the again and again and again that we see again and again and again in these chapters is significant. But enlightenment is once and for all. It says in the uh, Hebrews 6.4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened. That's once and for all. Once and for all. That's hapax in the Greek. Once and for all. You can't be enlightened a second time. You can't be saved a second time because you can't lose your salvation at all. And as soon as you're saved, then that's it. It's once and for all. It, and so you have been enlightened. And then you've tasted of the heavenly gift That is, you have drunk the water of life, you have eaten the bread of heaven, you have uh, eaten his flesh or, or drunk his blood, right? That's tasting the heavenly gift. There is no question this is a description of true believers. And then thirdly, you have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's a church age believer. Old Testament believers didn't have the Holy Spirit, but New Testament believers do. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. It is an unprecedented blessing for the church. And more tasting going on. You have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, this is where we ran out of time last week, and so this is what I'm going to pick up with here today. But it's a four-fold description, and it's a four-fold description of you and me. It's a fourfold description of everybody here in this room, if you are saved. If you are a church-age believer priest, which all of us here, I don't see anyone here that's over 2,000 years old, so we all got saved in the church age. We all got saved, and the moment we got saved, we received the Holy Spirit. The moment we got saved, all four of these things became true. We were enlightened, we were—we uh, have tasted the heavenly gift, we were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, now tasting the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. This is maybe the toughest of these four descriptions, but I think it's very special. Tasting the good word of God. Normally when we have word of God, we have logos. Logos is the word, right? Logos to theu, the word of God. But occasionally in the New Testament, it's not logos. And today is one of those occasions. We have the Rama, the Rama to theu, the Rama of God, or the rhema of Christ, or the good rhema of God. And that's what we have here. And the rhema of God is, is precise, it's specific. It's the By the way, it's the sword of the Spirit from Ephesians chapter 6. If you're going to wield that sword of the Spirit, it's not the logos of, of God, it is the rhema of God. And so the good rhema, the good word. And so what's the particular word? Why is rhema different from logos? Logos is the overall word or the word in general. Rhema is a very specific word. Rhema is a very targeted word. Rama is precise. And so you might think of it as a precise message, a precise word or or message, maybe message if you like that better, but a precise word. Okay. And so you might think of it that way. When Jesus was answering his temptations, for example, and and the, the devil said, you know, command that these stones become bread. What did Jesus do? He quoted scripture. He quoted, but he didn't quote Logos, the word of God in general. He quoted a very precise scripture. He found a rhema that targeted that particular item. The rhema that he came up with was, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So you see how that works? The rhema is very specific and is very targeted, which is why if you're going to wield the, the sword of the spirit, that's the rhema. You've got an exact word for an exact beast that you're going to kill with that, uh, with that sword of the spirit. See, that's rhema. And so this is why we stress Scripture memory, why it's useful to have as much of the Word of God in residency. You want doctrine in residency, not just on a general basis, but on a very specific basis with precision, with rhema, or plural is rhema ta. If you have rhema appropriate to the circumstances, then you can employ it accordingly. See, you know, and if, if the only verse you've got memorized is Jesus wept, um, That's going to let you down. (laughs) Jesus wept. Don't get me wrong. It's God-breathing profitable. It's it's in the Bible. But it's not going to be a rhema that you're going to bring to bear, that you're going to focus on most of your testings. Okay, There there could be a testing. There could be a thing where, where Jesus wept is the appropriate rhema. But it may not be if that's the only verse you've got memorized, is what I'm saying. So now we come back to Hebrews 6. Tasting of the good Ramata, or the good rama of God, specifically the powers of the age to come. And so what this does, these are precise messages, precise doctrines where we know what's coming up. We are focused on prophecy. We are forward-looking, tasting the good rama of God and the powers of the age to come. This is to identify with Jesus Christ for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And I think you'll see this. I think this Trinity will play itself out as we see the places in Hebrews where the author of Hebrews uses "Rama" instead of Logos, all right? Because this is not the first time. This is actually the second time that he has used "Rama." The first time that he used "Rama" was in Hebrews 1.3. And in Hebrews 1.3, we find that he is the radiance, Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory the exact representation of the father's nature and upholds all things by the rhema of his dunamis, of his power. I think it's dunamis. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so specifically speaking here, Jesus Christ, the creator of all things and the upholder of all things, that's what he has done. The book of Hebrews also stresses what he is doing, and the book of Hebrews also stresses what he will do. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What a joy. And so um, he upholds all things by the Rhema, the word of his power. And uh what a what a confidence, <laughs> right? In Hebrews 1 3 ought to give us stability. Hebrews 1 3 ought to encourage us that uh, you know if we think things are falling apart, stop and say, wait a minute, Jesus is upholding all things. All right? He knows what he's doing. And we can appreciate that. Of course, six five is, is uh, our passage today where we're studying the, the good rhema of God and the powers of the age to come. But that good word sustaining us today, the good word sustaining us today, which we need, and then what he is going to do, what is coming up. Hebrews 11.3 And this one even encompasses, I think, all things. By faith we understand that the worlds or the ages were prepared by the rhema, the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And so the ages, the ages past, the ages present or where we are in the church age, and the ages to come. Are we, are we oriented to the plan of God? Are we oriented to the Alpha to Omega plan of God? Okay? Because it's the good word of God. We should be tasting it. We should be tasting it. This is, this is our privilege as believers in the church age, tasting the good rhema of God and the powers of the age to come. In any event, I find it useful. I find having a forward-looking focus to be useful why I start every Bible class with my quotation from 2 Peter chapter 3, that according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. If I get my eyes off the things to come, then where are my eyes focused? If I'm not fixing my eyes on where they're supposed to be fixed, where am I fixing my eyes? And I think it's a problem for believers that aren't oriented to eschatology. And, and this, is, uh, this is the nature of it. I know folks will dispute it, and I've debated I've debated pastors on this. I've debated all kinds of Christians on this in and out of Austin Bible Church. And uh, there will be some who will say, you're wasting your time with eschatology. You're wasting your time with prophecy. Why bother with the things to come? That that our focus should be on here and now. And we want to be, we want to, we have people have problems now. We want to be comforting one another now. And we want to, you know, and, and their, their idea of biblical Christianity is moralistic therapeutic deism And they tell you that prophecy is a waste of time. And I will dispute that every chance I get because I believe that prophecy is keeping us forward-focused. That fixing our eyes on Jesus, even as Jesus was forward-focused. It was for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross, despised the shame, and was seated at the right hand of God. So I'm telling you, read Hebrews 12 and and see what Jesus did and tell me, was He not forward-focused? Was he not looking at the things to come? I believe he was. And had he not been, he wouldn't have endured the cross the way that he did. And so we're supposed to be forward uh, focused. We should be. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, because you don't think it's a waste of time, okay? You look for these things. Keep on looking for these things. Tasting the good rhema of God and the powers of the age to come. All right. To identify with Jesus Christ for what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. Guess what? What He has done, we weren't there. But what He is doing now, we're there. And what He will be doing, we're there too. Okay? Because I believe when it says, thus we shall always be with the Lord, do you know what that means? That means thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's right. So when that trumpet sounds, and we get snatched up to be with the Lord in the air, forever, with the Lord, forever with the Lord. So he comes back and he conquers at and we're right there with him, white horses and glory. When he sits on his throne in Jerusalem, we're right there with him. When he's seated on the great white throne and death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire, we're right there with him because thus we shall always be with the Lord. The bride is ever at his side. So something there to look forward to. Now, the danger of falling away in verse 6. So, read what it says, read what it doesn't say, (laughs) okay? In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then, okay? And so, we have a single group that we're talking about. There's in the case of those, and there's only one those, that, that group of those is described four different ways, but it's still the same those guys, right? So in the case of those guys, which is actually a terrible Greek, and uh, I'm going to highlight that for you here in a moment. In the case of those guys, what guys? These guys, described four ways, and then have fallen away and then have fallen away. So there were four great things that they experienced, and then this one other thing. Okay? Now, it says they fell away. It doesn't say they lost their salvation. It doesn't say that they were re-endarkened, or that they untasted, or they had their gift revoked, or that they were uh, no longer partaking of the Holy Spirit, or none of those first four things were undone. It doesn't say they lost their salvation. Falling away is not losing the positional realities of verses 4 and 5. Falling away is not losing the positional realities of verses 4 and 5, but departing from the experiential realizations of that position. You're getting this twice, aren't you? I gave it to you last hour. I'm giving it to you again. Positional reality, experiential realization. See the difference? One is a position, the other is an experience. One is a reality, the other is our subjective realization of that objective reality. And this is what happens when you fall away. You stop thinking like a saved person. You stop living like a saved person. But you never stop being a saved person. Don't confuse being with doing. Don't, ex- don't confuse the positional reality with the experiential realization. The, s- the objective truth with the subjective experience. Are we clear on this? So this is, this is what we deal with. And, I, and, I, and if I take the whole hour to do this, I don't care. Because I want a stable flock. And we live in a generation that is so unstable, it's scary. They think they can create their own reality just because they say so. Okay. Say well I was born male but the reality is I'm female and and actually I'm neither male nor female cuz there's 26 genders now and here's my pronoun. All right. Wait a minute. Let's let's stay in reality. This is our blessing. We live in the real world. And there's an infinite number of, you know, world of make believe like mr rogers neighborhood and the land of make-believe and whatever and you can live in your little land of make-believe all you want have fun and smoke what you're smoking and drink what you're drinking and pretend what you're pretending because it's make-believe it's not real reality is reality and we all share the same reality that's the blessing okay it's not that my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth no truth is truth the truth We want to be clear on that. So I drew a picture and I've used it several times now and here it is again. And when I drew this picture, I put a line across the top and that's called positional, objective, positional reality. Objective, positional reality. Reality is what is. That's what it is. And it doesn't change. Even if you don't know what it is. And even when you learn what it is, it it still doesn't change, because it is what it is. And if you pretend it's not, it still is what it is. The blessing is, once you realize it is what it is, and this is by faith, by faith we experience the reality. And so by faith, reality becomes a realization, right? Not an imagination, a realization. Because I'm not creating my own reality. I am identifying with what God says is real. And so positional truth, I'm saved. I've been enlightened. I'm a partaker of the Holy Spirit. I've tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. I'm saved. That's the reality. But the realization is sometimes lost. And you can look in a mirror and then you can look away. And if you look away, you can forget what kind of person you were just looking at. The Bible talks about this. And the Bible talks about what happens when we stop thinking in ways that are conforming to reality. See? By the way, that used to be a definition of insanity. It used to be that if you had a perception that was different from reality, they had had names for that. (laughs) They had labels for that. And those labels, they used to call them crazy, but then they got more politically correct with some of the labels. But you have a dysphoria, right? You have a, what have you, okay? The reality is, this is the reality. You are not Napoleon. You might have a Napoleon complex, or you may think you're Napoleon. You're not Napoleon. That you're, you're out of your mind. That's, that's not right. Okay? And I know we're chuckling. Pray for our generation, pray for our culture, pray for our children. So, when it says, then have fallen away, then have fallen away, we're talking about not uh, losing all of these realities, but parapipto and some of the vocabulary when we talk about this, we have left the track. We have fallen by the wayside. And so, Let's look at these other issues here. Repentance. Didn't think that was going to come up all in one slide, but that's all right. Repentance. You know, when it says it is impossible to re- renew them again to repentance, that should be a big clue, too. So it says uh, for in the case of these guys, and then they've fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, Just in case we're not clear on what it means to fall away, this is our second chance now for the reality check to say, oh, well, wait a minute. Repentance. Repentance from dead works, that's not what saved them in the first place. (laughs) Did you see repentance anywhere in verses 4 and 5? We saw that they were enlightened, that they tasted the heavenly gift, they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, they tasted of the uh, good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Repentance wasn't anywhere in the salvation experience. Repentance, actually, from dead works and faith towards God, that was topic number one in the elementary basics of doctrine. This is what you teach a new believer. Remember when we were talking about in verse two the elementary things, the instruction? When it says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let's get past basic doctrine. Let us press on to maturity. And then when it outlined what those basic doctrines are, remember what it said? laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God that's that's basic doctrine you teach a baby believer so repentance didn't save the folks in verses 4 and 5 it's not going to resave them here in verse 6 and they don't need to be resaved anyway repentance from dead works and faith towards God it was topic number 1 in the elementary foundational principles new believers must be taught someone that just got saved this morning, you've got to teach them this. Teach them about faith versus works. And you've got the best illustration to do so because they just got saved by faith. They didn't get saved by works. And so build on that salvation and say, all right now, here's, here's doctrine, basic doctrinal class number one. It's called repentance from dead works and faith towards God. And that's what saved you. This is what now we're going to teach you in the basic doctrinal um, studies. Topic number one. Since repentance didn't save them in the first place, it can't possibly resave them in the second place. Besides the fact that they cannot become unsaved in any case. Besides the fact that they cannot become unsaved in any case. This person that's fallen away does not need to get resaved again. In fact, he can't get resaved again. He never lost his salvation. All right. As long as we're clear on that, that's that's significant. Now, the, the issues here. All right. So in the case of those that are saved and have then fallen away, have fallen by the wayside, right? They're not on the path. They're not on the, the track for their maturity. They're not pressing on to maturity. What's the answer? What do they need to do? Well, if God gives permission, then they might press on to maturity or not. Let's be clear on that. But they don't need to get saved again. It's impossible to renew them again to repent. Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now we have, I think, the fullest explanation here of why these guys are in such trouble. All right? These guys are in a lot of trouble. Not trouble of dying and going to hell, but trouble of living here on earth and coming under God the Father's infinite wrath coming under such discipline as apostate believers because their defiance is far worse than any unbeliever's defiance. This is someone who should know better. This is someone who's been graced out. This is someone that's been forgiven. They've been provided every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and they are throwing it away. They are spitting on it. They're acting as if they don't care. They're acting as if Jesus on the cross doesn't change anything. In fact, they put him back on the cross. And uh, how vile is that? All right? How arrogant is that? And so we'll discuss this here as well. Because this, this comes down to um, the significance. To crucify, they again crucify to themselves the Son of God. So it's a re It's our term again, again. We've had all these again, agains in this chapter, okay? So here's an again, again. To re-crucify. Re-crucify is almost a, uh, a nonsensical verb, right? Because generally speaking, crucifixion only happens once. Yeah. Generally speaking, any any crucifixion is going to do what it needs to do. And so to re-crucify is... Uh, I think this is the only place in the Bible that has this verb, to re-crucify... And yet this is tantamount. This is effectively what they're doing. As if they themselves are putting Jesus back on that cross. As if they themselves are disregarding the value that that cross has for them. Now, is that reality? Are they putting him back on the cross? No, of course not. He's done with that. The cross is empty once and for all. He died once and for all. He's never going back to the cross ever again. So, when this apostate person, in their own thinking, effectively puts him back up there, right, he's not literally doing that. But in his attitude, it's as if that's what he's doing. It's in his attitude, he might as well be doing that. And the arrogance that's expressed in that, the arrogance and the attitude that's expressed in that, as if you would, or you, if you could, if you could, you would, right? Is, is open defiance against the plan of God. That says, you did that for me, but no thanks. You laid before me a walk, but no thanks. I got my own walk. I'm doing my own thing. I got to be me, right? Or the whole, um, <laughs> it's just, uh, we're learning about it in Philippians 3, they're, they're enemies of the cross of Christ because their God is their belly. Their God is their appetite. And uh, they're, they're glorying in their shame. Here they're putting Jesus to shame. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, parallels there from Philippians 3 to what we're looking at here. And then, not only is there, I think the language in verse 6 is stark, and then we're going to talk about the ground in verses 7 and 8. He actually gives a farming metaphor, a gardening metaphor here to uh, describe how worthless, how useless, how cursed... How um, burning the judgment's going to become, and if you're going to recover from something like this, I tell you, if a believer is going to recover from this kind of apostasy, it's going to hurt. The burning process is is going to cleanse the cleanse the worthless ground and and reinvigorate it. All right, so how serious is this? That's why I'm telling you, it's serious. It's not lose my salvation serious. It is. Stay saved, but be an object of God's wrath. That's, that's serious. Okay? We want to be clear on that. So, what are we talking about? The impossibility of re renew repentance. <laughs> okay? So, it's, it's redundant on purpose, it's redundant and repetitive. The idea of renewing is already a term that has a built in repetition. Because it's renewed. But now it's re -re renewed, right? So to re renew to repentance is uh, kind of a fun Greek expression. But anyway, it's impossible. It's impossible. You say, well, wait a minute. How can it be impossible? With God, all things are possible. I don't like reading things that are impossible. So why do I have a Bible that says it's impossible? Why does the Bible use impossible language when it says nothing shall be impossible for God? All right? We put these together and I think it becomes clear. But the impossibility of re-renewed repentance is closely connected to the permissive will of God, which we studied last week or the week before. Um, I want to show you how linked it is to the permissive will of God. As the impossible adjective is the first word of verse 4. And it's not even found in verse 6. Okay? I'm going to blow your minds this morning. It's going to be kind of fun. And uh, we're going to have those oh moments with the light bulbs coming on. And oh, that's what it's about. And, and really, the worst thing going for us here in this chapter is the English translation. Because, uh, because this is so wordy. In the case of those who... Right? Verse 4, In the case of those who... And then we're just wordy, wordy, wordy. One thing, two things, three things, four things. Okay, I get it already. And then they've fallen away. Okay, I get it already. And then it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. All right? So you see how far down that word impossible is in verse 6. I'm here to tell you it's not in verse 6. The Greek expression for impossible is not in verse 6. Is it the first word of verse 4? It comes right after, if God permits. All right? And so, it's not even found in verse 6. So, if you read Greek, or I'll just read it to you. Lewis, where's Lewis? Oh, Lewis is teaching in school. All right, Bill. Where's Bill? All right. Well, we have, here's verses 3 through 6. And kai tuta poiesamen. And this we will do. Right? Poeo, the verb to make or to do. It's in the future tense, first person plural. And this we will do. Kai tuta poiesen. Aon per. If, perhaps, maybe. (laughs) If God permits. Okay? Epitrape ha theos. If, perhaps, maybe. Permits, maybe, perhaps, God. This we will do if God permits. Ah dunaton gar, for it is impossible. If God permits, for it is impossible. Look how those are tied together. Look how close those are. Here's the if God permits, if permits hothēos, if hothēos permits, impossible for ah dunaton gar. Okay. The gar is an explanatory for. So, you know, the reader's reading along, if God permits. (gasps) What do you mean if God permits? Well, for it is impossible. Okay? It is impossible. That is, apart from the permissive will of God, if God permits. The only way it would be possible is if God permits. Because without the permissive will of God, It is not possible. It is impossible. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing your wife can do. There's nothing your mom can do. And I know she prays without ceasing and she prays like a hero. But if God does not permit, it is impossible. It is impossible. Then it goes on to talk about these other things. Uh, Impossible for... And now we have these, uh, these descriptions the ones, there's your hay packs, the ones who once were enlightened, right? Fotizo, photography. And then we have uh, tasting and uh, the gift, the heavenly gift, and uh, metakoi, partakers, okay? Anyway, so, but that impossibility comes first. It comes so late in the English text, but it comes up front in verse four. So what we really ought to do is just rewrite it in English somehow. This we will do if God permits, for it is impossible to those who have once been enlightened, to those who have tasted the heavenly gift, to those who have been made partakers, to those, to those, to those, and then have fallen away. Okay? But have that impossible way up front. And then finish the impossible. Um, Pauline, again, Anna to renew... To repentance is down there. So the impossible is up there, repentance is down there, and there's a whole lot of stuff in the middle. <laughs> all right? That's why sometimes when we're teaching Greek, we talk about the sandwich construction, we talk about how you got the top loaf of bread here, or the top slice, not loaf, top slice of bread up here, the bottom slice of bread down here, and then there's all kinds of meat in the middle. All right? You just load that burger up, and load that sandwich up, there's all kinds of meat in the middle, but sometimes it helps if you have uh, impossible to and you're waiting to finish that, right? If it's, if it's impossible to, what? Or if it's difficult to, what? Okay? Or it's crazy of Pastor Bob to, what? You know, we, we're, we're kind of opening up with half an expression. We really want to finish that expression. Renew them to repentance. Oh, okay. And and often we don't really do that in English, but Greek does it all the time, especially here, right? This is what uh, we have here. So it is impossible. What's impossible to renew them again to repentance? So there's the difference. And I think then, if I'm going to take the impossibility of it and connect it to the permissive will of God where it belongs, then my uh, my prayer life just got a whole lot better. Okay because now I'm not gloomy and pessimistic and throwing my hands up in defeat, saying, well, it's impossible. Might as well quit praying for him. It's impossible. Now, wait a minute. If God permits, okay, I'm going to keep praying for him. <laughs> All right? I'm going to keep praying for him because God may permit. If God permits. If God permits, keeps me praying. If God permits, keeps me encouraged that my brother, sister, cousin, nephew, coworker, whoever, I have a loved one that is out there in such horrible apostasy right now, and I want them to repent. And if I'm going to focus on it is impossible to repent, then why bother praying for him? But if God permits, ah, okay, keep praying for him. Pray for him today, pray for him tomorrow, pray for him every day, because if God permits. And that's the point of that. Hope that makes sense. All right. And so we have the uh, the impossible adjective is the first word of verse 4. The impossible adjective is not even found in verse 6. Everybody's all scared about verse 6 and it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And it's not in verse 6. The impossibility is the very beginning of verse 4. And it's linked with that explanatory gar to the if God permits. It's the explanation to the if God permits. Four. it is impossible. So... If God permits, what else does that tell you? That God may do a miracle. Because God's the one who does the impossible, right? God is the one, with, if, with God all things are possible. If God permits, and you're looking at your loved one, you're looking at your sister and what she's involved with, or your brother and what he's enslaved to, or whatever. You're looking to a saved person who's not walking like a saved person. And you think, wow. If they're ever going glor- to glorify Jesus Christ again in this life, it's going to be a miracle. And you're right. It will be a miracle because it's impossible. But if God permits, they will return to the light and they will walk in the light and they will bear fruit again, if God permits. So understand what is apostasy. Apostasy is a departure from the Christian walk and a re crucifixion of Jesus to self. Apostasy is a departure from the Christian walk and a re-crucification of Jesus to self. You say, I'm not sure what you mean by that. I'm going to explain. I'm not sure I like what that says. I'm going to explain, okay? Apostasy is not... um, I think sometimes we we throw up the apostasy label too quickly. Apostasy is not a, a, a drifting. Apostasy is not a... A slight lessening of the appetite—you're on the road to apostasy under those conditions. You're not full-scale apostasy yet. Not until you have parapipto fallen beside the way. Okay, that's the you know help I've fallen. I can't get up. Circumstance of of parapipto. All right. Now you can you can drift a bit before you finally take that fall. And and, and many many Christians do right? You can grow, before there's hardness of heart, there's slowness of hearing. We've discussed that. Slowness of hearing, that's a step towards hardness of heart. And these are the the warning signs. These are the wake-up calls that God gives us before finally then we stumble, before finally then we fall. And when we fall, when we're no longer on our feet, that's the apostasy. So, it's a departure from the Christian walk. It is a re crucifixion of Jesus to self. To self, not to God, but to self. This blasphemous rebellion exalts our dissatisfaction over God the Father's satisfaction. And this will take some time to chew on, it. this will take some time to, to think it through. It is a blasphemous rebellion. When you're re-crucifying Jesus to yourself, not to God. Okay? You know, when Jesus was on the cross the first time, the only time, when Jesus went to the cross, was he answering your absolute standard of righteousness? Was he answering my absolute standard of righteousness? Who put him on that cross? God the Father was pleased to crush him, putting him to death. God the Father is the object of righteousness. He is the standard. God the Father is the one that imputed our sin to his account. God the Father judged that sin. God the Father condemned that sin. God the Father shrouded Jesus Christ in darkness. He was crucified to God, not to me. But when I go into apostasy, what does it say here? It says, they again, they re Jesus, but then it says, to themselves. To themselves. They put themselves in the Father's place. Not only do they put Jesus back on the cross, they put him back on the cross and they say, You stay there till I'm satisfied. It's a recrucification of Jesus to self, not to God. It is a blasphemous dissatisfaction because the Father was satisfied. God the Father was satisfied for all eternity. Propitiation means the Father was satisfied. But I'm not. That's apostasy. Blasphemous rebellion exalts our dissatisfaction over God the Father's satisfaction. You know, he was well pleased to do this. Well pleased to do this and even though it cost him what it cost him, We're familiar with the theology here in uh, Romans uh, 3. Let's see, did we read? We did. Hebrews 2.17 already. That's where we are this morning. It's a departure from the faith, from the Christian walk. It's a re crucifixion of Jesus to himself. See, if you don't do that, if you allow Jesus to, to be eternally dead, buried, raised again, seated in the Father's right hand, eternally satisfying the Father, then we've got an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and things are great. We're in great shape. <laughs> we have an advocate before the Father. We can walk in the newness of life. And if we do sin, hey, we confess our sins, we're restored to fellowship. I tell you, the Christian way of life is marvelous with a glorious Savior seated at the Father's right hand. But what do we have if we re-crucify Him? What do we have if we no longer have an advocate before the Father? What do we have if we no longer have a risen, buried... Because, because we see we, we re-crucified Him. We re-crucified Him in denying the Father's satisfaction. In magnifying our dissatisfaction. Putting ourselves in the Father's place. So, then, what do we have when we sin? Who's our advocate? What standard do we have today? We become our own gods. We become our own standard. It's a frightening place to be. Okay? I think the worst idolatry in the world is self-idolatry, and yet that's what we're dealing with so often. Whose God is their appetite? Whose glory in their shame? The enemies of the cross of Christ we're studying in in Philippians chapter 3. All right. So let's look at Romans 3 and let's get some of this theology and understand why it's significant and why apostasy is so evil. It's an active evil. It's not just a, a passive evil, oh well, I'm not walking right. It's an active evil of defying the satisfaction of God and putting yourself in the Father's place. So Romans 3, and really verse twenty five is is part of a a larger context, but we can just zero in on it if you don't want to read the whole chapter but the 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 point is let's see romans three let's pick up in verse twenty one and this should be this should be solid you, you there's nobody here that really should be rusty on this, but it says in verse twenty one apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested okay shining fortizza we got the the manifestation there being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for there is no, uh, for all who believe, for there is no distinction. If you want the righteousness of God, you've got to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the only provision. There's no other provision. The law won't give it to you. The law is pointing you to Jesus. The law and the prophets, they're pointing you to Jesus. If you want the righteousness of God, you need Jesus. So, for all who believe, for there is no dis- distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift, that's a grace thing. You can't earn it, you can't deserve it, you can't work for it. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Are we clear? <laughs> There's no other way. There is no other justification, there is no other provision. It's the only way to be made righteous. Whom God displayed publicly. Now we start to see why this is so dynamic. Why this is such a big deal. And why apostasy is so wicked. Because God has an eternal display and you're going to put on your own show. You're going to display something else. You're making your own display contrary to the Father's display whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Propitiation, that's our term for satisfaction. That's that's all propitiation means, is satisfaction. By the way, it's also the word for mercy seat in the Old Testament. Jesus is our mercy seat because Jesus is the satisfaction, the propitiation. In his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate... His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. It's a demonstration. Our Father is the, ma- the master of show and tell. He is constantly demonstrating. He is constantly showing. He's showing humans. He's showing angels. He's been displaying these things. He keeps on displaying these things. And whenever you date Adam, if you're a 4,000 B.C. person or a 6,000 B.C. person, I like the subjugent date of 5,700 B.C., whatever the case You've got thousands of years from Adam to Jesus. And at the point he dies on the cross, God is now displaying his righteousness. That he was valid for passing over all those previous sins from Adam and Eve all the way to the cross. The Old Testament sins. A demonstration of his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed, but he had to judge them and he finally did on the cross. There was no other way to, to judge those sins. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right? Now, we're clear on this. This is, this is deep stuff, and it goes marvelously with, with Hebrews 6, okay? That he is the justifier, that he is just. If he's not just, he can't be the justifier. And if he's not just, and if he can't be the justifier, then none of us are justified. Okay? So you think this is a pretty important doctrine. Now, if you in apostasy are going to re-crucify Jesus, what are you saying? That he's not just, and he's not the justifier. And if you're going to re-crucify Jesus to yourself, now who's the justifier? You are. You are blasphemously declaring, I am the just justifier of me. And I, the just justifier of me, am going to justify me. See how bad this is? Okay. It is a blasphemous rebellion exalting our dissatisfaction. All right, father was satisfied? Eh, I'm not impressed. okay. He's eternally satisfied and I'm not? Who do I think I am? How can the Father be satisfied and how can I be dissatisfied with what satisfies the Father? How wicked is that? And you see, that's perfectly satanic because Satan's the one who said, I will be like the Most High God. I will be the absolute standard of what I'm satisfied with. Mm Mm-mm. God the Father. God is the only I am. God is the only one to whom satisfaction is uh, is, uh, oriented towards. And so that's the doctrine there of justification in Romans 3. That's the principle in Hebrews 2. That's the illustration in 1 John. We've got satisfaction. The Father satisfied, not us. 1 John 2.2 1 John 4.10. This doctrine of satisfaction is it impacted paul and impacted the author of hebrews and impacted john and so he writes about it here in 1 john 2 jesus is our advocate and i think we know this 1 john 2:2 2, 2, 1 john 4:10 what a blessing it is for us today in time to have a satisfied father So, 1 John is our book of fellowship. Chapter 1 is how to maintain fellowship, how to restore fellowship if we lose it. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. All of this is in 1 John, chapter 1. And then, chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Taught you this last hour. You don't have to sin ever again for the rest of your life. We have the power of the resurrection. We walk in the newness of life. If you walk by means of the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You never have to commit another sin. Okay? You will. I will. We all will. But you don't have to. I don't have to. We don't have to. When we do, it's not one we had to do. When we do sin, it's because we stopped walking by the Spirit. It's because we stopped walking with the power of the resurrection. The fellowship of his is being conformable unto his death. So, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Use First John one seven, so you don't have to use First John one nine. Okay. However, if anyone does sin, and we raise our hands and say, "Yes, that's us," what do we do then? First John one nine. And when we do this, when we first John one nine, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous unless of course you've re-crucified him to yourself if you've re-crucified him to yourself then you don't have the advocate with the father what kind of advocate to the father do you have if he's not satisfied if you put him back on the cross and demand your own satisfaction all right thankfully we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous the father's the just And the justifier, Jesus is the righteous. We get his righteousness. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. The satisfaction for our sins. say, no he's not. I'm putting him back on the cross. That's apostasy. That's why this is so serious. Because he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The whole world. Which is why we teach unlimited atonement. Jesus died for everybody. Which is why we have a marvelous gospel message for whosoever will may come. We have a marvelous gospel message that doesn't say Jesus might have died for your sins. It says Jesus died for your sins. Or that the Father might love you, or the Father loves you. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever. Okay? And so we come as evangelists. We come as sinners. We're just sinners saved by grace. And we're talking to sinners not yet saved by grace. <laughs> and saying, you know what? Your Savior has satisfied the Father. Your Savior is seated at His right hand. And I want to tell you how to get there. I want to tell you how I got there. I want to tell you how my sins were forgiven. And so we have the opportunity to share these things because it's not just our sins. The our here is believers. And the sins of the whole world is Unbelievers. By this we know that we have come to know Him. Do you know that you know? We're talking about knowing Christ. And how well did you know Him when you got saved? And how well do you know Him after so long? Okay? By this we know that we have come to know Him. Okay? Oh, how powerful it is. I love this. Coming to know Jesus in the fellowship of His sufferings, in the power of His resurrection, being conformed unto His death. If perhaps somehow I may be living in the rapture generation, attain to the resurrection out of the dead. Okay? That's Philippians three. We'll be there shortly. And I'm gonna throw that all away? The benefits of having an advocate at the Father's right hand, I'm gonna throw that all away to fall by the roadside and fall into apostasy. What a what a miserable walk. First John 4.10. Verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Born of God, that's saved, and knows God, you've grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. Satisfaction. Jesus was crucified to the Father. He was not crucified to us. Apostasy re-crucifies Him and re-crucifies Him to us crucifying, re-crucifying Jesus to self. What a pathetic idol is that? <laughs> you know, of all the false gods in the world, you know, find, find a false god more impressive than you. You know what I'm saying? A false god more impressive than me. You know, at least Thor, God of Thunder was impressive or Odin was impressive or some of these other gods. All idolatry is ridiculous. But the biggest, the dumbest idol in the, in the universe is is Me. How pathetic is that? Praise be to me. What is that? What have I done? All right. So this is the uh, this is the context. This is the warning. Uh, next week we'll come back and we'll talk about well, what do you do with a field full of weeds? What do you do if you can't get any you can't get any fruit out of this thing? The ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, well that's not any good. Who's going to eat those? If it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and it is close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. Alright? So just burn it to the ground and start over. Well, we'll deal with that. That's the gardening metaphor that that uh, illustrates the uh, severity of how seriously the Father takes it. If you're going to defy Him and re-crucify His beloved Son, that's the severity. Okay, and So we'll deal with that. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this message. Thank you for this day. Thank you for brothers and sisters that study to show themselves approved. Thank you for brothers and sisters that uh, are not content or satisfied with just uh, pablum or light and fluffy. They want the meat from your word. They want to grow. They want to take in such powerful truth because they want to live it out. And I thank you for it, Father. So stoke our appetite, feed us, uh, open our eyes to see where this gets applied and work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Father, might we live this out for the glory of your son. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, amen.